During Lent, uh, we have been hearing the stories from Luke's gospel that occur on Jesus' road to Jerusalem. And you will recall that for 10 chapters in the gospel of Luke, Jesus and his followers are on a journey that leads them to the holy city. This morning, the scene is their arrival in Jerusalem. So this is like the triumphant arrival of a king. I imagine that it would look like the arrival of a king in Jerusalem would look like a display of power or physical might. Or maybe it would even look like gratitude. The king would say, thank you. Thank you for making me your king. Well, here's the scene. How about this? This is Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 41. These are Jesus' words. Beginning with verse 41, it says, As Jesus came near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This, to me, is a very strange and startling inaugural address. It tells me a few things about who Jesus is. First, it reminds me once again that Jesus is a very strange and unusual king. In particular, it tells me that violence is not the way of this king. He is deeply saddened that his people have decided that violence will be their way. If only they could recognize the composition of peace. The scripture passage says, if only you could recognize the things that make for peace. Instead, Jerusalem and the people who surround Jerusalem are choosing self-righteousness. They're choosing to stand their ground no matter what happens. They're choosing no matter the cost that they will be right. They are also choosing to meet the violence that Rome is bringing with violence. They choose to meet it with rebellions, with zealotry, with more violence. This choice, Jesus says, and Jesus' words are infused with tears in this scripture passage. This choice will mean that the Romans will crush them to the ground. That's not an easy message to hear. It strikes me that for this strange king, it is also not an easy message to speak. His words are spoken in the role of a Hebrew prophet. A Hebrew prophet had an ability to see how continuing destructive patterns 
would bring about harm, would lead not only to further destruction, but would lead to annihilation. But beyond that ability to see destruction, a Hebrew prophet's trademark was compassion. It's a defining characteristic of who a prophet is and that it hurts a prophet to deliver bad news. Um, What you're not going to hear from a prophet, from a Hebrew prophet, and what you're not going to hear from Jesus is things like, I told you so, or it serves you right. (laughs) Now, those are words and phrases that I kind of like to speak when things, when my advice is not heeded. What did you expect? Or remember what I said? Those kinds of things you're not going to hear come out of Jesus' mouth, and you're not going to hear from a prophet either. Very little, if any, of the prophecy that Jesus speaks as he enters Jerusalem is is about making himself look right. We know this about Jesus, that he doesn't put himself against his people. Uh, That's a stance of conflict when you have two sides against one another. Uh, In a stance of conflict, the sole outcome is that one person wins and the other person loses. One is right and the other is wrong. But what we see from the Mount of Olives as Jesus enters, the city is clear. It's not Jesus against Jerusalem, but instead it is Jesus with Jerusalem. The text says that he weeps over the city. This is not just a tear or two. This is not just a misting. He's not caught up in emotion, but his heart breaks. I am reminded of what it's like to raise children to adulthood, to raise children through that time where they become really independent. You know, the teenage and young adult years, a lot of times... Uh, young adult children will take that stance of conflict with you, won't they? Where one person is right and one person is wrong. A parent who follows the way of Christ instead takes this stance that Jesus takes. And that stance is no matter what, no matter the stance that you take against me, no matter what, I am with you. No matter what, I am for you. This scripture passage in Luke's gospel is known as a lament. And a lament is um, a very strange content for a gospel because the gospel is supposed to be about good news. Lament is also strange content for the entire New Testament. You don't find very many laments in the New Testament, although there is a very beautiful lament in the 18th chapter of Revelation, a lament for Babylon, for the enemy. But in the Bible overall as a whole, you will find that God laments, that prophets lament, and that psalmists lament. In fact, depending on the scholar that you ask, one-third to one-half of all the psalms that you find in the Bible could be classified as a lament. There is even, in our Old Testament, a book that we call Lamentations. It is written when uh, the Babylonians invade Judah and they surround Jerusalem and they starve out the inhabitants of the city until the city falls. 
One commentary says about Lamentations, the reader is not so much engaged by the material that you'll read in Lamentations, but you are instead assaulted by it. That's what it's like to read Lamentations. Here's just a sampling. This is from the second chapter of that book. Cry out to my Lord from the heart. Don't relax at all. Don't rest your eyes a moment. Get up and cry out at nighttime. Pour out your heart before my Lord like water. Lift your hands up to him for the life of your children, the ones who are fainting from hunger. Lord, look and see to whom you have done this. That's the book of Lamentations. Old Testament scholar and friend of this congregation, Matthew Schlem, because he married well, he married somebody from this congregation, says this about laments. He says that we need to know as faithful people that the Bible is filled with prayers that give a voice to deep suffering. They dare to say that God is forgetful. They dare to say that God is unreliable, that God is hidden, that God is unresponsive, even that God is the cause of suffering. Lament is a prayer that allows me to say all of what is true for me, even and especially those negative emotions. A part of the power of of a lament is that it is spoken to, it is directed to God, who can handle our negative emotions, right? So I was at the Little League field on Friday night, and one of the things that I noticed at my uh, experience at the Little League field this last Friday night, which did not go well for our team, I noticed and was reminded that children, children can't and shouldn't have to handle the force or the focus of our negative emotions. But God can. God can handle the force of our negative emotions. God can handle the focus of our negative emotions. In a lament, you will usually come across some combination of two of those negative emotions that we're familiar with, anger and sadness. And sadness comes when something that is valuable is lost. And so uh, sadness comes when we lose a loved one, like at a funeral. It comes when an opportunity is lost. It comes when a job is lost or our health is lost. It can come over time if those things happen over a longer period of time. It doesn't have to come all at once. And anger, anger enters when we perceive an injustice. When we see that something is not right, when we are wronged or someone that we care about, someone that we love is wronged, then we are angry. The one way to avoid those two emotions, the one way to avoid anger and to avoid sadness is simply to ignore them. And you know, we sometimes try this in the church. And one of the reasons that I know that we try this at the church, in the church, is because we have some cliches that we like to use on ourselves and we like to use on one another so we can skate right over pain. Here, I'm going to see if you know these cliches that I know. The first one is, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So uh, this one is, is, is often used 
to imply that God is behind a bad thing that happened to you, right? That God closed a door, that God just shut it. Um, I, I, I think that's possibly true in some circumstances. I think it's not always true that God is behind bad things that happen to me. Um, some doors just need to be closed, right? And there need to be no other windows open. Just move ahead on to the next thing. It could be that the nugget of truth that is in that cliche is that it's about temptations. So that leads me to another cliche that we often say to one another. Have you ever heard this one? The Lord will never give you. What will the Lord never give you? More than you can handle. Exactly. Okay. So that one probably refers to the 10th chapter of First Corinthians, which is talking about temptation. It's not talking about circumstances. That's how we use it with one another. And you know what? Sometimes we do have more bad circumstances than we can handle and we need one another. But here's what the scripture says in First Corinthians chapter 10. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. So when we're talking about temptation, um, those cliches may actually be true. But when we're talking about circumstances, not so much. All right. Well, how about this one? Have you ever heard this one? I sometimes hear it at a funeral. The Lord just wanted another angel. Where? In heaven, right? The Lord just wanted another angel in heaven. So this is not in scripture anywhere that the Lord plucks people off the earth to become angels in heaven. Um, While we are created in God's image, and I believe to reflect God's compassion and God's creativity, we are not created in God's image uh, to reflect neediness or control. I don't think those are qualities that God has. So God's not just plucking people off the face of the earth because he needs them. Okay, one more, one more. All things work together for good. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably a scripture misquote. Um, It's the scripture reference of Romans 8.28, which teaches that God can use all things for good. But it should not teach, we should not tell one another that God is causing all bad things. A better translation of that particular verse is, in all things, in all things, God can work for good. The point uh, to, to a truth that I, uh, this, is, this points to a truth that I believe can be helpful when we're in pain, that our pain can be used to enlarge us, to grow us. And um, many laments do, in fact, end with that hope, that God will use our pain, that God will use what's disappointing to us, what, what angers us, what saddens us, to grow us, uh, to, to, make us to make us better. Uh, so the problem with cliches that I see is that they prevent this opportunity to engage in the discipline of lament. They keep people from walking around in the dirt and seeing that the world can be really dirty, that the world can be messy and ugly and hard. And they keep us, they prevent us from coming to terms with that truth and searching for, and when we search, finding God in the midst of that mess. A little over three years ago, we had a bad couple of months in our house, um, It all started when we discovered that there was a leak in the foundation. And so some of the flooring in our house had to be ripped up. And and as this happened, the leak 
got larger and larger. So more and more floors came out of our home until the refrigerator sat on the back porch. And the only thing left in the living room were a couple of lawn chairs. And then our six-year-old had this freak accident on the playground where he broke his leg and he was in a cast that was up to the top of his thigh and in a wheelchair. If I could go back and live that spring three years ago again, if I could live those months again, I would take up less of my time with fear and with guilt. I had some fear that all of the bones in his body were weak, and I spent a lot of time exploring that fear. I had some guilt that I wondered if I had somehow caused uh, this break in his leg. Did I not put the right shoes on him, or did I not pray in the right way for his protection? I would instead use more of my time to lament. I would use more of my time to say things like, This is terrible. This is so bad. When he hurts, I hurt. Why does he have to wake up in pain in the night? And I would even say to God, I'm afraid. What are you going to do about my fear? Who's responsible for this? God, why did you let this happen? I would cry more and I would yell more. And those are two things that are pretty difficult for me. I don't do them very well. Composure is often required of me, but I don't think that that's unusual to my profession. I think that we all kind of walk around with this requirement that we put on ourselves to stay composed. Because when we stay composed, we can keep the routine of our day going. But it is true that there are things that are so valuable and so important to us that a break in the routine is required. And I believe that grief is one of those things. There's a new trend um, in our culture, and I don't know if you've noticed it. You might not notice it unless you are in the family of a pastor or you're in the family of uh, Porter Loring or Helen Deere. The trend is this, weekend funerals. More and more weekend funerals so that people don't have to take a break from school or from work. Uh, that, that Instead, they can come. Uh, and this isn't just for people who are attending the funeral. This is for family members. We don't want them to take a break from work or school. And this trend is it's unsettling to me because I believe that when a loved one dies, we should take a break. We should take a break and we should walk through that grief, that God has something valuable to offer us in that. My grandfather died uh, during my sophomore year in college. It was at the very end of my sophomore year in college. And I'll never forget going to ask my most intimidating professor for a delayed um, final in that class. His name was Dr. Stefan Mestrovich. He was a, he was sociology of religion professor, and he was from Yugoslavia. He left his country during the war. So generally speaking, he didn't have much time to put up with the angst of a sorority girl. <laughs> but on this particular day, he did. He had time for me. And his response to my question about having the final moved was this. He said, of course. Of course, this is important. I loved my own grandfather, and so I am sorry for your loss. And then he said, don't even worry about the final. 
He didn't make me pick the final. He said, this is more important than the final. Lament demands that we do two things that we normally don't do very well. And those two things are slow down and pay attention. We have to notice what's going on inside of us, which takes some time and reflection instead of focusing on what's going on around us, outside of us. Pete Scazzaro wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, and in it he claims that the degree to which we grieve our losses is in direct proportion to the depth and the quality of relationship we can have with God. It is also in direct proportion to the compassion that we can offer other people. So it is true that all of who we are and all of what we experience belongs to God. Admitting that and being all in opens us up to further revelation. Gerald Sitzer is a pastor who in 1991 was driving his minivan. um, And in the minivan, he was hit head on by a drunk driver. And in that crash, he lost his mother He lost his wife, and he lost his four-year-old daughter. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, walking people through the grief that he experienced. And in it, he said this, I did not just get over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul, and sorrow enlarged my soul. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain. So what I want you to do this morning is to take time to take a moment during the communion that we celebrate together to pay attention and to take time uh, to reflect on anger or sorrow that, that you are aware of in your own life um, Maybe it's something that is just from the news, because you know the news is kind of reported to us pretty flatly. So maybe what you want to write on your sticky note is the 13 people who were killed in Lakey this week. Or maybe it's something that nobody knows about. But I don't want you to write as my sermon. (laughs) Don't write that that's stirring up anger or sorrow in you. (laughs) I won't let that stick on the window. But think about your own life and your own experience. And when you come forward for communion this morning, I want you to put it on this window because I want you to physically experience leaving a lament on the window. I'm not asking you to stand and shout it. I'm just asking you to write it down. Leaving your lament on the window, and I want you to see the light reflected through it. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we thank you and we bless you. That your light illumines our path, shines around us, and shines uh, through even very painful experiences. We remember the painful experience of your son, our Lord and Savior, his crucifixion. And we remember that on the night before he gave himself up for us, he took bread and gave thanks to you. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
when the supper was over, he took the cup and gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood. It's a new covenant. It's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it. Eternal God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may in turn be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until your son comes in his final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.